can't believe no one yelled at me for not mentioning affinity laws in my... That was <laughs> my next thing. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely... Oh, oh I didn't even deal. look at that. I, I was waiting for someone Pump had to basics. Like, I assumed it was in there. Pump yeah, affinity laws. <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> well, Clayton, did they ever teach you that in school? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. Yeah. Do, I, do I retain all of it as of right now? No. But no, but you can know where to look for it. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Rock and roll. Right, let's, let's do it. it. Hey, guys. Welcome to the Better Building Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with me today is Nick Taliska, Jim Pasquale, and Mark Sankey. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the what I would consider the heart of today's industrial and commercial facilities, centrifugal pumps. So, um, yeah, just kind of... <laughs> To set the stage for this, like I said, I, I kind of consider the pumps the, the heart of these facilities. They are, I don't know, if you consider the pipes, the arteries, the pumps, to me is the heart kind of keeping the critical fluids flowing for, you know, the HVAC and whatever processes are, processes are going on within this facility. So, um, yeah, extremely critical. <laughs> exactly like a pump. That's great. Yeah. So that was, that was the... Yeah, that's the first thing I thought of. You know, the pump is the heart and the arteries are the pipes. And, you know, these keep our facilities alive. When pumps go down, um, you know, you can't do what you need to do. And in general, if you're tuning into this podcast, I would assume you know what a pump is. But maybe we'll let Jim cover some of the basic operating principles of one. Sure. You know, so today we're going to be focused on centrifugal pumps in HVAC and uh, mechanical systems, I suppose you can say there's two main types of pumps out there. There's centrifugal pumps and positive displacement. Today, we'll be focusing more on centrifugal. And what a centrifugal pump does is it pumps fluid by a means of um, rotational kinetic energy. So you have an impeller that's being spun typically by an electric motor, or it could be a steam turbine or uh, internal combustion engine. And that impeller is creating rotational kinetic energy, which forces the fluid through your piping system or whatever you're using the, the pump in. And that's um, different than a positive displacement pump. You could think of like a reciprocating pump that has like a piston that uses a different type of method to force your fluid through your system. Yeah, I always think of positive displacement as in like hydraulics. You know, I guess you yes. have a little bit of background in that. And, yeah. Well, and and I would add to that your positive displacement pumps. You could also have peristaltic or screw or diaphragms. Yeah. Many different types. Uh, yeah. But they're all you know the the most common applications in HVAC are in metering applications where okay we're we're going to meter uh, feed water chemicals or things like that or sometimes in uh, boiler feed water in some occasions but oh yeah you you know if this rotated x amount of times you know how much right um fluid liquid was moved whereas the centrifugal obviously you don't yeah. so yeah and in hvac like mark said uh, the positive displacement type pumps are in metering but also as well you may find them in in low flow high pressure applications which aren't very common um in hvac it's like clayton said he might find them more in other areas like hydraulics, mm -hmm. um, like fluid power. That's more typical to yep. see positive displacement. Uh, the most common type of pump in HVAC is going to be your centrifugal pump. Yes. So we, we talked about positive displacement and centrifugal, yep. um, you know, and then you, you kind of can say, you know, when you learn about pumps, I guess, in like academia, you learn about like the Bernoulli equations, um, the pump head basics, pump affinity laws, and you learn what a pump is and does in, you know, math <laughs> rather than touching and seeing one. You know, like I remember we're doing all these calculations and learning about all the formulas and how to size a pump, whatever, how much horsepower head you need on it. And I have never, I'm learning all this and I haven't been in front of a pump bigger than i don't know a horse and a half you know at this point in my life what and then you get in the industry you're talking you, about like 
you know, in college, I'm talking about. Oh, oh college. in college. Oh. Like, I, yeah, I, you I guys had me work. Yeah, no, 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 no. Pay attention, guys. Yeah, thanks, like... Nick. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you know, you learn about all these equations and you say, oh, I need a 20 horsepower pump and it's got to make, uh, you know, whatever feet ahead at whatever GPM. And that's great. You learn about all these equations. And like I said, I've never stood next to a pump that large before. Um, so there's two different sides to it. You know, the the actual physical pump and whatever and then the theory behind it so i don't know if we want to cover the theory behind it at all or not either i think it's important to cover that but it's so true clayton because i remember the first job i had and i was i don't know told to get some quotes on some pumps and yeah you know i was getting out tables and doing all this stuff and yeah the guy was like just tell him how much you want to flow. He'll figure out the rest or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You need two yeah. pieces of information. You're not going to give him like, you know, dimensions on a size frame. Just yeah. tell him how much stuff you want to push and yeah. what the pressure requirements are. And It's that yeah. easy nowadays. Yeah. In college, you're doing all the curves and the flow and you got to calculate how many 90s you got and 45s and valves and all that good stuff. Well, that's the we still have that to. happens. Yeah, yeah. it, it kind of gets separated. So when you learn about this stuff, it yep. gives you an understanding. But in reality, it might be somebody else really going through a lot of the uh, the calculations and the theory of it. But no, incredibly important to understand all the basics. So what's what, what does it all come down to? What are the basic pump equations, if you will? I'd say, you know, they're all derived from the Bernoulli equations. So, you know, Clayton was speaking about the academic approach and in college, they really get into the weeds of uh, like you're considering the dynamic viscosity of the fluid you're pumping, Yep. Uh, you know, de- densities and, you know, that's, that's all you, it's really important to know that because when you're not working with a typical fluid like water or a glycol, or it's actually important to know a glycol as well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, because we have a lot of simplified equations we use when we're dealing with a typical fluid. Like if I'm dealing with water, you know, at a, you know, between 100 and 200 degrees Fahrenheit, um, or even chilled water for that matter, you're pretty, you're going to be okay using some simplified equations. You don't need to get into the weeds and a lot of those different uh, parts of the equation. However, if I start adding glycol to the mix or I'm in a process application where other chemicals are being added to the water or I'm at more extreme temperatures, um, like for example, like a medium or hot temperature pressurized central like district energy pumped um, hot water system. Now you need to start getting back into those numbers to make sure that your equations that you've come to use, you know, as an engineer, you get get further out of academia, you start to get comfortable with your equations. You know, what a common one is, um, you know, your heat, you know, your BTUs equals 500 times GPM times Delta T, the fluid. Yeah. That's a very common one. And it's a good, equation it's gonna be good enough for most of your applications but you have to understand how that equation was derived so that you know so you know how to keep yourself out of trouble and when it's appropriate to use that equation and other simplified equations um, keep yourself out of trouble that's why it is important to have that academic and theoretical background and knowledge um, to know where that equation came from did you hear the way Clayton snickered though when he did the 500 GPM? What was that about? <laughs> no, that, I, mean, I remember right when I got out of college, I started doing some calculations in the you know in the real world, if you wanted to call it that. And I yeah. was like, Q equals M dot CP delta T. And yeah, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, right on. <laughs> Don't do that. It's you're wasting time. 500 GPM delta T. That's very true. I mean, in the academic environment, we're doing we're doing the exact thermodynamic equations out of the right. book. In the real world, I yeah. mean, your boss is going to laugh at you. you not have time, <laughs> yeah. right? In the real world, that's good. What is good enough? You know. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it took man. a little bit. Of, it took a little bit of time to like you know coax that, coax me into that. Like, Dad, this is really easy. Just five hundred GPM delta T. I don't have to do M dot CP delta T and find out. You know, exactly. all this. That's just, that's like, why I laughed a little bit. I'm like, ah, I remember all of this. But it's good you understand that, Clayton, because like I said earlier. 
Um, you know, we use that 500 GPM Delta T. We can use that a lot and be okay. Yeah. But you know when you can't use that. And that's the, that's the important thing, you know, right. that'll help you, um, you know, prevent yourself from getting into a lot of trouble should you load up on glide call or you're operating yes. at a very cold or very hot temperature. Yep. You know, or there's some other fluid you may be pumping. Um, you know, that's, that's important to know. So that's why I snickered. Nick. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and in ninety percent of the applications we deal with, those are that's fine. You know, yep. Uh, CFM times one point oh eight times delta T, all that stuff. But get out into the industrial world, and those things go out the window. And unless mm -hmm. you're prepared to uh, make the appropriate adjustments, the error goes up exponentially, literally. So. Oh, I just put a drive on it. It'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so basically it comes down to for the Bernoulli equations uh you know velocity of the fluid, pressures, and then what fluid you're dealing with, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean the Bernoulli equations, you know, and generally speaking, you know, will state that you know you're you're looking at the pressure and like the characteristics of a fluid at two different points in the system and the, the equations made up of an elevation head um, a velocity head um, uh, oh, wow i'm trying a blink i'm the, supposed to be the pump expert the pump expert i know <laughs> <laughs> well it's stuff you, like you don't you don't memorize though necessarily either because you just you you reference it from you know whatever academic source you have and you do your calculation oh because i'm in my head i'm mixing just two different ways to show it i'm kind of mixing it let me pull up a the energy equation comes to my mind too right that was a big one for pumping or the affinity low, right? loss yeah yeah mm -hmm. well we can't just brush over them but <laughs> no. we'll get into them at the appropriate time <laughs> Yeah, when I have it up in front of me on my computer. Yeah, so, uh, well, I, I have the Bernoulli up here. It, it, you know, and generally speaking, it's like, it's your velocity pressure, your elevation head, and then also your, your static head. Those are the three main components of the, uh, you know, Bernoulli equation. And where that really becomes important is in open versus closed systems. Yes. I yep. want to get into that right now. Oh, we can we'll take it wherever we want to. That was a big one too. That was a that was an interesting, um, you know. Again, it, back in academia, you know, it's taught like if it's a closed loop, you don't have to account for the elevation head because the water is doing the work for you when it's coming down, right? But if it's open loop, you do because the pump's got to do all the work. Yeah, that that's I'd say that's mostly true. Uh, when, <laughs> when you're talking about, you know, doing like a pump head calculation, that that's true. The, so that in that case, the elevation heads, of the Bernoulli location will cancel each other out. Right. However, you do need to keep an eye on your static pressure because if you're like, for example, in a high rise building, well, you know, it might not affect your pump pressure calcs, but it might affect the actual pressure classification of your pipe and fittings. Oh yeah, yeah. Just right. the water column, like exactly. Yeah. So every fourteen feet is five psi in static head. So that adds up very quickly in high mm -hmm. rises, and you know that has to be dealt with. Correct, because you get very high pressures um, on the lower end of the building. Yep. Well, and that will influence your your maximum turndown on your VFDs too, right? Well, the static heads static. are really not affecting the pump operation per se in a closed system it's more of like the burst ratings and the structural integrity of the piping system itself because that static pressure is the pressure between the pipe and the ambient it's not necessarily a differential pressure between the pump inlet and um, outlet so when we're talking about like static pressure and the effect of elevation head on closed systems, you know, I, I become more concerned with, especially in high-rise applications, um, what, what's that static head, you know, the overall pressure 
especially in the lower levels where you're going to see it the most. Yeah. So then if, if so what would determine when you're talking about the, the minimum turndown of a VFD, what determines that? Motor. So I think, yeah, Nick, I think what you're getting to might be more in an open system because yeah. if you turn down too, if you turn if you turn down too much, you might not have the ability to force the fluid up flow. high enough. And in a closed system, you know, as long as the system and this is important, as long as it's filled, yes. you're not relying on the pump to fill it. Yeah, <laughs> then you'll be okay. Yeah. Um, but to your point, if if it's not filled, then Yes, you'd have you wouldn't the pump would not have enough uh, dynamic head to lift the fluid high enough if you were if you were relying on the elevation head, you know, to cancel out in a closed system. And I, I see thirty percent like t- assumed in a lot of instances for how much the VFD will be, you know, if you're not doing like a, a model of the system, but how how much how much you can turn down that VFD. But then in practice, we find that it's not really close to that. From a pump Maybe performance a perspective? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in general, though, you need to go back and get, you know, your pump curve that was published for a constant speed pump isn't applicable to variable speed. You really need to get multiple pump curves for for the multiple speeds, and that'll tell you what it's doing at 30%. But in general, the 30% number is more related to motor cooling uh, of the actual pump motor, and it doesn't happen. And you're over. You know, uh, a lot of people try and make the mistake of using the constant speed single pump curve to try and understand what the pump will do at different speeds, and you can't really do that. Yes. Yes, a lot, a lot of manufacturers will publish um, pump curves at different speeds. So they have variable speed pump curves, and they also have, and I don't want to jump the gun on this, but parallel pump curves as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's important. You can't just rely on a you know, 60 hertz or 1800 RPM, whatever the nominal speed is of the pump, of, you know, constant speed pump curve if mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, you're trying to use this pump in a variable speed application. I feel like that happens a lot, though. <laughs> Financially or logistically, maybe just you know, why why get rid of this pump if it still works? So we'll put a drive on it and then run it till it dies. Yeah, and that's you know, when when you, when you get into talking about like retrofitting an yeah. existing constant speed pump with a, a drive that you know you have to. There's a lot of considerations there. Is your pump motor like inverter duty rated? You know, the, the windings would be be able to handle the right. the power quality coming off of a VFD. Um, could the cooling fins of the motor cool the motor at a lower speed? Um, you know, there's there's a few things to consider when you're taking an older constant speed pump and throwing a drive on it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. done all the time. It's, it's definitely doable. You just have to check no. some things off the box. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff, I don't know, stuff that if you're tuning in, maybe you don't think about all the time or you see happen and may not be the best things to do. I don't know. That's why I'm bringing it up. That's all. I'll <laughs> see what you guys think. Um, do we want to kind of to dive into, you know, the different types of pumps? Like for me in my commercial and industrial experience, I see vertical inline is like the new fancy. And I guess base mount and suction would be the standard you know, what you see existing pumps? Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate in in my observation. Like your base mount on suction is like your your base level pump. It's typically typically the cheapest first cost. Right. Just looking at the pump. Um they're very popular in industrial <clears throat> um and manufacturing applications. Um and they're just kind of like they've been around the longest like they're kind of some of the oldest and most common pumps are your basement mount and suction and just to give a quick definition of what a basement and suction pump is for those that don't know that's where the pump the inlet is axial to 
the impeller and the motor, and then the discharge is typically straight up, like at a 90 degree angle from the inlet. Um, if you could just think of like a typical pool filter pump, that's typically like a base mount and suction pump. Um, you know, there's vertical inline pumps, there's circulator pumps, double suction. You know, those are probably the most common, I would think, in uh, HVAC. Uh, you know, vertical inline is has definitely become a lot more popular. I know I myself really like specifying vertical inline pumps um, for their, you know, spatial considerations. They tend to take up less space when placed properly. Mm -hmm. um, they're very efficient and they, the um, vibration isolation, I believe is easier and cheaper to implement with a vertical inline pump. Uh, you know, you might, you don't necessarily need to get into um, inertia bases and spring isolators. Um, you know, on, on most of the vertical inline applications, if you think about a top spinning, you know, if you spin a top like a little toy, very little vibration, it's pretty yep. smooth. And that's kind of, you know, in a simple analogy, you know, that, that's kind of the benefits you're getting from a vibration point of view from a vertical inline. Any size limitations on the vertical inlines nowadays? Like what are they making them up to? Horsepower? I mean, I've, I personally, I know they, I know that, you know, they'll go up to thousands of horsepower. I've personally been involved in projects where we've used 500 horsepower. Wow. Um, yeah. Supported from the piping. Hmm. You know, it's not supported from the floor. We see, um, oh, I'm sorry, Jim. Yep, go ahead. We see a lot more vertical inlines coming into play too in the industrial plants because of uh, service abilities, change out abilities. Uh, you know, there used to be an entire industry focused on pump alignment. Uh, that goes away with a vertical inline uh, by and large. So there, there, I think, is a real transition happening even in the industrial world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, your, your, your gravity's in line with the pump shaft. Right. So like Mark said, with alignment, you know, a lot, it kind of takes care of a lot of other issues that are common with your base mount, you know, or so, any type of horizontal type of, of pump. Hmm. Yeah, the top uh, analogy was good. Yeah, I agree completely. I guess I would have never thought of it like that without the analogy, um, but it really puts it in perspective. At least for me, it did. And I've mostly seen like smaller size pumps, so that's very interesting that you get a, uh, you know, get that power out of an inline. But it's just how the buildings, like you said, conventionally base mounted pumps do the heavy lifting. The inlines might be tertiary loops or something. Yep, and I think that's like a there's a difference, um, and that's kind of a gray area for some, but like a vertical inline is not necessarily the same as like a circulator pump. The circulator is typically your smaller, you know, single horsepower, fractional horsepower pump. Like in your house for your hot water boiler kind of? Yeah, it's like yeah. in your a hot water boiler, it's typically only overcoming the pressure drop of one device. So for example, like in a boiler system, like a primary secondary boiler system, you might have circulators just pump pumping through the boiler and then you might have vertical inlines pumping the whole building. Um, that's a pretty common thing to see. Um, and that's, that's kind of the main difference, I suppose, between vertical inlines and circulators are very similar in their, you know, the way they're, they look and operate, but the circulators, sometimes they're not even mounted vertically. They, they might be in like a vertical pipe, but the actual pump shaft itself might be horizontal. Um, you know, they just tend to be smaller and more flexible and they're more like higher flow, lower pressure, mm. you know, typically, I don't know, 25 feet of head and less, just overcoming one, like a very short run of pipe and just pumping through one device. That's for, or, you know, in a residential application would be pumping a whole house, but, right, right. you know, circulators are just, you know, lower head, um, smaller, whereas your vertical inlines are, can be your, you know, primary building distribution pumps. Is there any general uh, efficiency benefit from one configuration to another, you know, vertical inline versus, you know, base mount end suction or double suction uh, in general? 
And also, are there more or less accessories required in terms of suction diffusers and those kinds of things? So that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't necessarily have the uh, academic or theoretical answer. I could just tell you from real-world experience, selecting pumps all the time. You know, when I go to select a pump, I'll put in the pressure and flow requirements and all the other requirements of the pump. And I typically leave it open. I, I know I'm probably going to go with a vertical inline, you know, for the bigger pumps, but I just to see how it compares to the other pumps, I like to see how it compares to your base mount end suction um, and other types of pumps out there. And the vertical inlines tend to be the most efficient. Now, if efficiencies of you have to be careful in variable speed pumping applications because your efficiency is always changing depending upon the system curve, whatever the system um, head pressure resistances at that time, which can always be changing with static pressure reset or opening and closing valves, as well as whatever the pump speed is at the time. So when I say vertical inlines tend to be more efficient, I'm looking at the best efficiency point on the pump curve. And I look to the, to the right of that to where the pump will most likely spend the most of its time. Because kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, when you look at a pump curve, like a constant speed pump curve, you know, that kind of goes out the window when you're designing variable speed systems. You have a lot more to consider because that pump, you know, constant speed's kind of easy, you know, easier to select, I suppose, because there's just a lot more constants involved. I mean, it's in the name, it's a constant right. speed pump. Yeah. Uh, you know, whereas variable speed, we're trying to consider all different types of operating conditions. We try to maximize and optimize based on what we think the system will be doing throughout its life cycle. So I guess, Mark, maybe that's kind of a a muddy answer. <laughs> no, I think that, that's a reasonable answer. So it really comes down to, you know, a careful evaluation at the point of design and also going back to, you know, if the owner has a specific request in general, when we have the opportunity, we recommend vertical inlines just for, mm -hmm. you know, ease of service, ease of replacement. If you need to, you know, make a wholesale replacement and, you know, even when vertical inlines started to become more mainstream 15 years ago or so, even if you had to do something like shave an impeller or turn down an impeller, it was much easier to do than in a, a base mounted end suction configuration where you're basically you know, almost tearing the piping apart. Yep. Are there any ceiling like ceiling advantages compared like for a vertical inline versus a base mount in suction? Um or the, is that pretty much the same kind of concept? Well, I think from a, just think about the um actual configuration of the pump like Jim said it's the spinning top. So mm -hmm. unlike um a base mounted in suction if uh, you're looking at a base mounted end suction pump, you have radial and axial loads on the seal uh, yeah, all the time you know, mm -hmm. versus just on a, a vertical inline, it's radial only. So there's some difference there. And I was just, I don't know, that maybe is something you don't necessarily consider, but. Seals are a whole different animal though. I, I mean, from a sealing yeah. person, you know, it's a, it's a funny story, but about three years ago, we, we did a, uh, they call it a boiler MACT study, which is minimum uh, acceptable control technology for a big boiler house. And they sent us the, uh, they had someone else do it first and they said, we can't even submit this. They sent the boiler MACT study and uh, basically there were, and in general, it's a review of the overall control technology and any energy conservation or operational issues that are uh, observed during the study. And there were a list of pumps that uh, all listed leaking seals and needed to be replaced. So we went to the site and looked at the pumps and they were all high temperature feed water pumps. Now they're making 600 PSI steam. So they're high temperature feed water pumps with all uh, water cooled seals. So the water was doing exactly what it was supposed to do, keeping the seal intact and flowing to drain. But the, the other boiler Mac provider had said, well, these, these are all leaking seals. So in the, in the seal world, whether they're mechanical seals, lip seals, you know, pressurized seals, 
depending on the application, that's a whole different animal in terms of whether you need to buy pumps with replaceable seals or, um, you know, cartridge seals or whatever you need to buy. That's a whole a separate podcast, it sounds like. <laughs> sure, be, right. Yeah. Okay, wow. Well, and that's, that's kind of one of the things that gets impacted the most with those uh, reductions in speeds on VFD-driven pumps. Sure. I think you guys were talking about, right? Yeah, if you have a pressurized seal that is requiring pump pressure to mm-hmm. uh, maintain yeah. the seal, and mm-hmm. you depressurize that seal, it'll leak like a sieve. Yeah. Well, and I think that's where some of the fallacies come in on, on the energy analysis of it, right? And somebody will assume we can, you know, at the lowest load, we can turn down to 30% of, you know, the max rated output, but without consideration for those types of things and what the impact is. And even if it can do that, you know, with the physics. Right. Of- so we want to talk about that. Does that kind of fit into like parallel pumping in a way? Kind of? Hmm. It could. It could lead us into that discussion, <laughs> I suppose. Like, you know, talk, we, we're talking about pumps. Um, obviously, uh, in addition to pumps, you need to control those pumps. And parallel pumping is, I think, extremely smart to do. But it changes probably the, the way you approach the design of your pumping, your pumps, correct? Yeah, that definitely. You know, I think parallel pumping is very common um, for good reason. Um, in, in you know today's market, and a big reason for that is there's, there's different benefits you could get. You get redundancy, you get energy efficiency if done correctly. It gives you more flexibility. You know when when you have the parallel pump curve to look at, um, to especially in variable, variable speed applications, um, that best efficiency is always moving around, and now with the proper control strategy, you may be able to operate your pumps in a much more efficient way rather than just having one pump, you know, lead lag, trying to do the whole load. Correct. Yep. So I got a question then, um, from my experience, it seems like, like to me, parallel pumping, totally Why? I mean, you, right. Based on the, the pump laws, you, if you're running two pumps at half speed, you reduce your KW consumption by 75%. Um, so like I see there's a lot of focus still on like pump efficiency though, but like how much efficiency are you losing compared to by by you know running your pump at a different speed than your KW reduction by parallel pumping? Does that make sense? Did I ask that question correctly? <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like people are like, wow, we, well the, the the curve doesn't line up or it's not right on the curve, but I'm like, well yeah, but you're reducing your your energy consumption by three quarters by running these two pumps in parallel still. Like how much you're saving by running in the correct range on your curve. And I think this is something it's just, it it could get very complicated. Um, You have to look at the affinity laws and you were, you were alluding to it that it's a cubic function, the, the, the reduction of power versus the speed of your pump. Um, You have to be careful not to overstate it because if you look at another affinity law that flow is proportional to pump speed, right? You you can't um, discount that your head pressure is, is a square of your pump speed. So, you know, it's not exactly like you could just turn your pump. You could you can't just you know install right. eight pumps, run them at a fraction of the speed, and expect like a ninety nine percent drop in electricity. <laughs> it's not going right. to happen. Right, right, um, right, right, right. But you know, in most you know duplex and triplex systems, you're typically better off running the pumps at lower speed, just because of the the square and cubic functions of of how some of like you know whether it's friction or just the affinity laws working to your favor you're typically better off running multiple pumps at part speed however that may not be always the case if especially when you get into really low flow situations um if you get into the weeds on like vfd efficiency at part load or motor efficiency at part load you know motors Mm -hmm. could fall off a cliff in terms of their efficiency Uh um you know, when you get down to, you know, part load operation, you know, the nice thing I've seen is, and I've had some good results with it. 
a lot of pump manufacturers will have like packaged pump controllers and they'll have the pump curve built in to the, the pump controller. And whether you use something like that or you analyze the pumps and try to come up and program your own control sequence to try to find the most efficient way to run the pumps based on all these different efficiencies at different points, um, you know, you're typically going to find that, you know, running most pumps, running multiple pumps at part load is going to be your most efficient way to do it um, unless you're in a really low flow situation. But, you know, that's a typical situation. You have to look at the pump curve for each application um, because it could be different. I'm just speaking in terms of what I've seen to be the most common, common way to do it. Boom. That's some wisdom and knowledge right there. So I, I just can't put eight pumps on where I only need one. <laughs> just keep getting cubic reductions in yeah, power. <laughs> damn it. Pretty soon the utility's paying you to yeah. Damn it. But the, I think the very good points, Jim, because um you know, when you when you only look at part of the pump the pump laws you're like, well, this is a no brainer, but I guess there, there obviously is more that comes into play with it. So. Yes. I think, I think what some people may confuse is when you're just thinking of just comparing variable speed pumping to constant speed pumping. Right. That's where like a lot of like your, you know, your cubic reduction in power is more of an accurate statement. Um, when you get into parallel pumping and now you're talking about using two pumps together that's where you have to be more aware of what else is going on in the system it's not it's no longer the same comparison of variable speed versus constant speed right um now you're looking to all right i'm running one pump at a higher speed versus two pumps at a lower speed you know what does that do to the head pressure when i turn down the pump Mm -hmm. you know in a constant speed system you know it's it's uh it's a different argument and a different comparison yeah, right. Just, right. Just square it and don't cube it in that case. You'd be stiff. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Well, it's interesting, though, because we've talked before about the psychrometric chart, right, and how important that is to air. Yep. Uh, pump curves have got to be one of the next things on my list of, I mean, they look pretty simple, you know, and you can follow them. But there's quite a few, well, you know, you guys know, quite a few things to understand about pump curves and to properly apply them. I, absolutely, and that's probably a tough thing to do over a podcast. I, I feel like you need the you need the visual. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Well, you need a visual guide yeah, to I, go through that. I would even say we need to go back and revisit the uh, NPSH again. Because oh yeah, we didn't even talk well, about that. I, I mean, I've seen that be referred to in ways that um, it's it's even hard to describe. And making an error on that side has you know pretty significant. Uh, long-term effects. Absolutely. Especially in HVAC, the most common, in my experience, problem with NPSH is in open systems, most commonly in a cooling tower. Correct. Um, You know, you have to be very cognizant of the net positive suction head requirements of your pump, and you have to make sure your NPSHA, which is your net positive suction head available is going to meet the requirements of that pump. Otherwise you are going to cavitate, which is essentially you're boiling the water at the impeller. You're bringing the um, pressure so low, it's meeting the vapor pressure of the fluid at that condition and you're boiling water, you know, whether, you know, it's doesn't take 212 degrees um, to boil water at those inlet conditions, you're at a reduced pressure and it's going to erode and shake and it could destroy your pump pretty quickly. I got to say, I've never personally heard of a, you know, heard a pump cavitate, but it sounds like it's um, pretty extreme to. It is. It is. And and, and it's interesting because uh, we've, we've been to a couple job sites where, you know, it was NPSHA and calculated were so close that as soon as the strainers uh, started to get dirty, the suction strainers started to get dirty at all, the pumps would cavitate. And obviously in an open cooling tower, you need the strainers to protect the uh, chiller tubes. But, um, you know, it was 
at the point where they were changing or cleaning strainers, you know, once a week, which nobody wants to do that. Yeah, and that might get into a whole different podcast on <laughs> water quality and filtration of open cooling towers. <laughs> yeah. But that that's a common um and that's actually I don't know if it's a debate, but I've seen some make the argument that um as long as the condenser water pumps are located close to the cooling tower, don't place strainers or maybe just use them on startup and then remove them. And uh, then yeah, yeah. You, you know, and I'm I've just seen they go back and forth. Um, you know, you pull that away. Now your pumps are unprotected. Pumps are unprotected. I don't like any of that idea. Yeah. I mean, if you do that, I'd hope you have a strainer at least on your condenser water and let your chiller. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that's how important it is. You really want to limit the pressure drop between the inlet of the pump and the cooling tower or whatever open system you're dealing with that suction side of the pump. Um, you know, and a big part of that is not just the length and the number of fittings and the pipe losses on the way to the pump from the tower, it's the elevation. So when we're talking about Bernoulli's equations, this would be the elevation part of it to where the lower your pump is below the water line of the cooling tower, you get to use that elevation head in that um, suction head available equation. So since it's an open system, you know, that doesn't necessarily cancel out anymore. And we get to use that in our equation. I like it. <laughs> I think it's all really good stuff. I was just trying to think of where, where to go from I'm, I'm there. I'm taking then. notes. Just... I know. <laughs> I think this is a really great podcast. It it brings it a lot of stuff to, to one place when we're talking about pumps, because there's obviously, you know, People can think and focus on a little, a lot of different bits and pieces, but when you bring it all together, it is really, it can become complex and complicated to selecting the correct pump. Well, I agree. And that's exactly where I was heading with the next uh, question I had for Jim is when you're selecting a pump, Jim, okay, so now in, in, we've seen it many times is how much excess capacity in flow or pressure do you typically put in a design for a pump that may or may not be constant speed? Because I have some uh, uh, follow-on questions depending on your answer. You know, how how much is oversized? That's a great question, Mark. Um, you know, with, with the variable speed pumps, it's it's going to be a lot more forgiving than a constant speed. You know, the constant speed pump, you oversize it. You got to jam down Mark's favorite valve, the triple duty valve or whatever balancing valve on the discharge of the pump, you know, to help, you know, or you're trimming impellers. There's other things you can do. Um, whereas the variable speed pump, it's, you just turn on a drive. And I know that's, that's a very simple and incomplete answer, but just to kind of give a comparison, turning on a drive is, you know, less costly, um, you know, first cost and operating cost of, you know, cranking on a triple duty valve or trimming an impeller. Um, that being said, you know, you don't want to get, you can't just like double, you can't make a calculation and then just say, I want double or triple the amount of pump as a safety factor because now you're going to run into other issues, you know. Right. In addition to just, you know, angering your client that just shelled out double or triple the money. Um, for the pump itself, the electrical and support infrastructure for that pump. I mean, it gets very expensive. Right. Um, you know, but it, it is prudent to provide a safety factor and oversize a little bit. Now that you do have um, more flexibility and cushion with variable speed pumps, especially parallel, when you go in parallel, because now you've also increased your turndown with the ability to turn off a pump and run one at part load. You know, it really does parallel variable speed pumping really does give you a lot more flexibility. Um, so, I mean, me personally, if, if, if I'm below, I like to give um, at least, I would say, depending on the application, five to 10 feet extra ahead. Um, if I'm below, I would say 50 feet ahead. Once I get above 100 feet ahead, I might want to add like an extra um you know, 10 to 
And these are all kind of dynamic safety factors that I use based on the specific calculations I did and the application, you know, knowing, you know, what am I doing here? Is there a potential for this specific job? Are they going to add a bunch of extra fittings in the field or are they going to maybe do this in the future? Are they going to be adding on to the system? You know, I kind of consider all of that when I'm adjusting my safety factors. So what I'm hearing, Jim, is that all pumps are 25% oversized. I think, <laughs> I, honestly, that's probably a good assumption. You kind of hear that. I mean, I get what you're totally saying, though. It could, it's a lot of variability in it, but uh, definitely not something you should count on, you know, without anything else to think, oh, we've got extra capacity in this pump because I'm sure the engineers built it in there. Well, I think that if that's going to be true for almost every component you know i think most engineers are going to oversize because it's safer for them right like if they over the penalty for them to undersize is much more drastic than if they're a little bit oversized right well, like you said the application of a vfd on there you know that adds some cushion as well so yep you know if i'm 20 if i'm 25 percent undersized i'm in big trouble if right 25 percent oversized i mean i'm yep. In a way, I might be right, right on the money. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. But I, I think that number has come down considerably since designs of twenty years ago, too. So if you go in an existing building, the odds of pumps being twenty five percent oversized at least are somewhere around a hundred percent. You know, and it may be much more. Mm. The older you get, you're saying right. Yeah. Was that just due to like computing and technology well, no. to be able to predict the actual head of the system and whatever, you know, all that stuff? Or? All of that. And it, and it also goes back to compounded safety factors. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, that happened all the time in, you know, yep. paper I was gonna and actually Excel spreadsheet. Up, yeah. So, okay, you know, I have uh, my pressure drop across the chiller, pressure drop across, you know, control valves or chilled water valves, all those things. And then each one, well, they get rounded up to the next higher number or, you know, there's yep. a margin of error or safety factor at each one. And then you compound that and you get a pump that's 50% oversized and they put in a triple duty valve and crank it down or, you know, pull the impeller out and shave it or whatever it was 20 years ago. Now you can put a drive on and your problems go away. But um, if you go in an old building... I mean, I always look at the triple duty valves and see them at, you know, fifty percent open or sixty percent open, and that has been doing its its uh, single purpose job of wasting energy for twenty years straight. <laughs> the tough thing is, it's got it's such a it, you know specific knowledge base to have to say, you know, oh yeah, this is definitely an issue. Whereas, like you, if you know. Like Jim said, if your pump's oversized and you crank the triple duty valve or turn on the drive, like, I don't know. I don't know how many percent of people that look at it would know how bad it is or what it's causing, but it's not a huge percentage, I would say. No, and, and typically there would be no reason to look at it unless you're you're doing... There's an issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People are warm yeah. enough or cool enough and yep. everything seems to be working. Well, that's okay. And yeah. I think, you know, to... You know, folks that aren't initiated or really comfortable with pump laws, they think, well, you, what happens to the pump amps? And I, I get this all the time. You can't shut that, that, uh, valve. The pump will blow up. The pump will overheat. Well, does the pump current go up or down when you close a shutoff valve? Trick question. On a, on a constant speed pump, it's going to go down. Exactly. Uh, the, on a positive displacement oh, pump. Oh, that's a different story. story. Oh, yeah. totally. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. I didn't yeah. qualify the question. Well, I, I think it was it was assumed, but I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right, and that's something that people don't think about either. Same with a fan, you know what I mean? Like, yep. it's drawing more amps when it's not blocked. If I just turn a fan on and point it at a wall. So, uh, yeah. so Jim, how do you overload a pump? Well, I mean, if you if you uh, run if you if it has if it's a constant speed pump and it has less um, 
the system is experiencing less head than it was right. designed for. More system pressure. Because right. exactly, because if you go back to the affinity laws, um, you know that's a square function, and you're gonna, you know, you're you're gonna overload, and that that's where, like your flows are square, but your pressure is direct, and that's that's the important distinction of understanding why when you crank down on a valve or a damper for a fan in a constant speed system, you get less amps because yes, you may be increasing the static pressure. That's a direct relationship, but you're also lowering the flow. That's a square mm. relationship. And that's why in a constant speed system, even though you're increasing the pressure of the system, you're also reducing the flow. And overall that's gonna win out and then you're gonna have less amps. Now, an important thing to realize if you're, you know, in a variable speed system and the system is going to do whatever it can to maintain like a certain flow, yeah. like a constant flow, well, then you're going to increase your amps because the fan's going to speed up to try to compensate for that. Um, but that's my answer. That's a, that's a good answer. <laughs> There's a lot to this. Well, and I think what you see to draw the analogy is you go to a variable air volume uh, fan system, we measure the static pressure and make the assumption that flow will track static pressure uh, to the VAV boxes. So we know when the VAV boxes open up, the static pressure drops, we increase the fan speed and make maintain flow and performance of the VAV boxes at constant static pressure. And you can draw the same analogy with a you know, variable speed pump. Yeah, for valves. For valves, the, right. Yeah. Some people don't control like that, though, right? I mean, there's other ways you can do it based on, like, uh, um, valve position or VAV oh, position and all that stuff. Do, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. See, I always, I always just went to the static prep. That's what I was taught with, pretty much. <laughs> so that's the most familiar Cheap, to me. Cheap, last a long time. Yeah. Well, sensorless pumping and is becoming yeah, more of an interest, right? Tell me about that because that, that stuff's really cool to me. Very interesting. Yeah, so that's uh, relatively new to the scene. It's been around for a few years now. Um, and I know I myself, I've had good results with it on multiple projects. And what a sensorless pump does, um, you know, if you're in a variable speed pumping application, you know, the typical variable speed pumping application requires a differential pressure. The differential pressure sensor is somewhere out in the system. Mm -hmm. The pump is going to control and maintain a certain differential pressure. With the sensorless pumps, they have the pump curve loaded into the, the drive from the factory. And that pump is going to be looking at its rotational speed the amount of amps it's drawing and looking at the pump curve to determine what the system, uh, you know, flow and differential pressure is. So, you know, these are not going to control differential pressure as precisely as if you had a sensor out in the field. But the reality is, is in most HVAC applications, you're going to be okay, especially in, you know, these are very common in retrofits where it may be very costly, um, you know, to get a sensor way out, you know, in a building that's far away from the mechanical room um, where you can rely. These sensorless pumps are they're pretty good. They're pretty accurate in, in my experience with them to, you know, control to a certain pressure or flow, you know, to implement variable speed systems where, there may have not been one previously. So, um, oh, I didn't mean to cut you off, Jim. I was saying, you know, they may even make sense in new systems as well. So, like, you know, when I think of um, um, your standard variable speed pumping system, your, D, your DP sensors at whatever the end of the line and you're set to, I don't know, whatever pressure. And then that you, your BMS looks at that right and then tells your pump you need to be this speed and then when valves open it changes and it ramps your pump up or slows mm -hmm. it down as things open and close so like you for a sensorless pump do you program that like into like the pump like there's a little interface on the pump and you say this is what you control to and you don't need any other input from anything 
pretty much? Pretty much. I mean, they're, it comes packaged. The controls will be on the VFD, which is if it's a vertical inline, it'll be mounted right to the pump motor. Uh-huh. And, you know, I've seen this done on pumps as high as 500 horsepower. You know, the, the VFD is mounted right to the motor. And on that drive, they have the, the pump controls. And from there, you could set, you know, your, your the VFD turn down the desired differential pressure to be maintained. Um, you could set it for constant flow, which is very nice. You know, mm-hmm. for example, an example of a constant flow system, you might have, you know, individually pumped chillers. You know, maybe it's not in a headered, headered system, but you have mm-hmm. a pump on each chiller, but they're sharing a common pipe. So when one turns on, there's not as much resistance because you only have one chiller's flow through the common pipe. So the pump might slow down a little bit. Whereas if all four are on, the pumps might need to speed up to maintain that constant flow. You know, before the constant speed pump, you'd be riding the pump curve and it'd be going yeah, motor current. You know, above right. and below maybe your target. Um, but with a constant flow, essential as pump, you know, if you desire to have a more precise flow condition, you know, it could help accomplish that without the need for all the the sensors that would go along with it. And you're saying, Jim, it's primarily its own rotational speed. I mean, it has to be sensing something, but from what I gather, it's all internal to the the pump. Yeah, the, the big thing is having, yeah, it's, well, it's sensing current, motor current's a big thing, and it's comparing that to the pump curve, and it's also, it knows its rotational speed. So going back to our affinity laws you know it knows the relationship of um, the speed of the pump to the amp draw and it's able to make a determination of what the system differential pressure is now are we seeing the same applications on the air side with the same penetration as far as you know you're seeing them out in projects and having success with them oh that's a great question it's a good question nick you know i don't think you know, I have something in mind. I'm not a. Sh- I don't think it's an exact comparison or an analogy. I know there's a lot of fans out there that come with the ECM uh, mm-hmm. variable speed motors that also have like their controls and drives built right into the as part of the motor. And they seem to be on the small side, or at least what I've seen. So I'm sure. Yeah, your, your ECMs are typically fractional, and actually now they're coming up. I've seen them up to like five horsepower. Um, applications recently and like for fans I've seen the package controls with like constant flow or constant pressure I'm not sure if it's doing the exact methodology of looking at a fan curve um, you know I don't, I don't think they just come with sensors and just have all the controls you have to wire to the factory controller um, so I don't know if that's a direct comparison to what's going on with some of these centralist pumps but that's something, hey, maybe another podcast. Sensorless hey, fans. <laughs> so I got one more question for you. Um, are these sensorless pumps, like what's the cost premium on them compared to doing just your standard VFD pump? Like is it astronomically expensive to do this, to be able to implement it, or is it pretty close? I don't believe it's um, a significant cost difference, and I don't have a concrete number right. to give you, but... If I had to shoot from the hip, you know, on some of them, I want to say like zero to 10 to 20%, maybe Mark, I don't know if you've had. Yeah. I don't even think it's 20%. Wow. Yeah. So when you look at what, how they're doing this, it's all just a software package and a lookup yep. table. Mm-hmm. So all it is, is we know the RPM, we know the amps go to this cell in the lookup table. What's yeah. the flow rate. <laughs> and, and that's all it is, which, you know, how much does that really cost exactly. in the big scheme? Not that much. Yeah, I know if you if you have a uh, a pump mounted VFD that has like BMS communication ability, it typically already has what it needs to do um, the sensorless operation. Mm-hmm. And I, I've had a situation where I asked, you know, 
for like a line item deduct like hey what's the difference if we remove the senseless and they're like no it's the same price <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know if that applies for everything but right just to give you an idea um i know it's very if it's not the same price it's most likely a small premium right but like anything, like if you're going to put this into a, already a system, you know, with DDC control valves and all that, you're going to just probably put the, add it into the BMS and, you know, put your DP sensor in and you'll be able to see and do everything anyways. But correct, yeah, um, yeah so I, I was just curious, like, like I said, it, something it's new technology to me. So, well, it is interesting that, you know, two decades ago, I don't think anybody would recommend, well, maybe they would, but at least we weren't, uh, you know, applying a VFD to anything under, I don't know, 25 horsepower, maybe, you know, just because the expense of it, it wasn't worth it. Right, and then right. You see that go down and be, you know, essentially fractional horsepowers can be varied now. So it's amazing. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Everything will be sensorless oh, in 10 years. It will be. Yeah. Next prediction, flying cars <laughs> and sensorless everything. Flying, flying cars, sensorless hey. pumps and absorption chillers, Nick. So, but what I don't like about that, even uh, the naming, uh, it's it's not sensorless. Yeah, you know, it's misleading. It's, there's right. something different going on there, and that's fine too. But it's not necessarily. Uh, it just knows what to do. It's, it's good. It's wireless pumps. It is well, not it wireless, is. but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's I internal sensing is what it is. But that's right. The yeah. they're, they're trying to show you yeah. that you don't have to run. Yep. Hundreds right. of feet of control wiring. Yep. Get up in the middle. Get a DDCC system. Yeah, it wouldn't sell if it was like new pump. It's like a package rooftop unit. <laughs> oh, give me one of them. It's uh, got to sound sexy. That's what they call it, sensorless. Ooh, you know, it does. it's enticing. Ooh, I want this fancy stuff. It's one of the most exciting things in pump technology I've heard recently. So that's that's all good news. Yeah, definitely. So what do you guys think? I think we covered a pretty solid hour and probably some change um, of pump discussion. And I think it was really insightful, as I said. <laughs> I got I, It's making me yeah. like say, man, I better start hitting the books a little bit more. Jim covered a lot of good stuff here. And <laughs> no, it's very yeah. good. There's a very lot good. to learn, a lot to know. Um, a lot to keep up on, too. A lot yeah. to keep up on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really want to know. talk about spring isolators. Oh, you want to talk about those? <laughs> Just saw oh. it on the outline. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. We we alluded to a little bit of that stuff, though. I don't know. I w that was stuff I never thought about, though. That just came with the pump, I thought. Hey, tell us about like, inertia bases. Kind of. So an inertia base is really a separate floating concrete pad that's isolated uh, above the the main floor. And it's basically to absorb the startup inertia of a large pump, especially a constant speed pump. And it also operates as a, a vibration isolator of the system from in, in terms of uh, instead of anchoring to the actual structure mm -hmm. of the building. So the whole thing is isolated separately. I'm digging it. Where did you first see these coming into uh, play? Oh, these are, these are old yeah, school. Large, large uh, pieces of equipment? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it used to be common on large centrifugal compressors, you know, thousand horsepower compressors, big pumps, you know, and, and it's interesting when I say a big pump in, you know, in a school system, for instance, it used to be common to see a hundred or 150 horsepower mm. pump in a big school. And the thing was gigantic mm -hmm. compared to a modern like a hundred or 150 horsepower pump. Right. Yeah. Um, so that pump might have had an inertia base. And a couple of things have happened. Number one, pumps have gotten smaller and lighter. And number two, the um, technology uh, required uh, to isolate vibration is no longer required because we're doing soft starts or VFD starts right. on a lot of this stuff. An inertia base is a literal, like it requires a lot of inertia or it has, what has a lot of inertia, whatever. <laughs> so like, no, it's to absorb a lot right, of inertia. Right, right, Like they're heavy and big. And, on, it yeah. It can absorb the inertia yeah. from, yeah. 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 And it's a lot of cost. You have to build a frame, pour concrete, you mm -hmm. know, raise mm -hmm. it up, support it with vibration isolation springs yep. and then mount your equipment to it. So, so I another, guess another argument for vertical inline pumps. 
A great Another point, argument, great point right. there. And also with, you know, the size capacities there with the vertical inline, but then also, Mark, you're saying with the equipment sizes kind of coming down, are you seeing more or less inertia bases and less? Okay. Yeah. I would follow that. I've only yeah. seen them on very old existing installations. Well, I wouldn't say very old. I mean, that's relative, no I guess. See Mark's handprint in the concrete. That's right. <laughs> Mark did this. Well, that's no, interesting. I don't think I've ever come across those, to be honest with you, but. Really? Would I know it if I was standing on top of inertia base? You might have. You've probably seen one, but you didn't realize that the spring isolators were. You probably just thought it was a housekeeping pad. Ah, uh, yeah. Like, that's what it literally so, I mean, looks like. With inertia base, your isolators will be below the pad okay. rather than right. between the pad and the pump. I, yep. yeah, I bet I have then. Okay. Very good. I bet you have. Yep. Yep. And now the pipes just support the pumps with vertical inline, huh? Not even bases anymore. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, you don't even see them. No flex couplers. I mean, a lot of vertical inlines are made to be able to put a, a pipe directly under the center of right. the uh, axis of the pump. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that that pipe stand supports the pump and you don't even see a vibration isolator. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Program the pump and go, you're a pump. Do your thing. Goodbye. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, when yep, you're make it happen. fail, yep. order it yeah. one. Yep. I like it, guys. I think it's, I think we'll wrap this one up now because we're getting over our... I'm pumped out. Yeah, we're pumped out. <laughs> yeah. Um, with that being said, Thanks for tuning in to our listeners. And Jim, thanks a lot for your insight. And Nick and Mark, you guys, you know, I think it was a really good conversation. Um, a lot of great information in it. And ooh, what are we going to talk about for our next episode? Maybe we'll leave that up in the air again and let our listeners wait and wonder what we'll discuss. We could do a little mini series about BMS stuff, or we could get into a different episode discussion. We'll we'll leave it open but whatever we talk about it will be good guys so <laughs> with that thanks a lot for tuning in and have a great day everybody